Yes, we're recording. I don't have to wear my Britney mic this morning because um, we don't have sound, uh, which, you know, happens. This is COVID time, so we are just day by day trying to figure out what to do. Um, I will encourage you to, as the weeks um, go by and as this virus gets possibly worse, to just go with the flow, okay? Let it be something that uh, maybe you're connected to all of the other Christians around the world who aren't obsessed with having lights and sound and technology and even a meeting place. Come every time as if you're joining with all those people who don't have to rely on all of that stuff. Um, I know you're seeing through masks, but on a day like today where we're singing uh, impromptu uh, with just our voices, it's kind of hard to hear most of you. Know what I mean? I mean, I know it's weird and awkward and we're uncomfortable, but again, this is just another opportunity to experience the church like the vast majority of Christians experience church. And so we're lucky and blessed to even be able to meet together. This is far superior to Zoom, okay? And there's kind of an added bonus, and that is if anybody chooses to stay with us in the coming weeks, it won't be because they thought our singing voices were very good. Um, So that kind of, you know, makes people feel pretty comfortable and humble about uh, being here. All right, well, I'm one of the ministers here, one of four. My name is Brad. Don, one of our elders, was who prayed earlier. Uh, Leslie's over there. Josh is over there somewhere hiding. And then my brother Garrett is also one of our ministers. We're glad that you're joining us today, particularly those of you who are college students. You're back. You ought to know that we're a part of a network of churches. Okay, We have like five other churches in the DFW area, like 15 college ministries. This church was planted for college students. That is why we planted this church, because we wanted to bless and minister to college students, okay? And be a support to this focus ministry that some of you have just heard about. Uh, And anyway, we're glad that you would choose to be with us this Sunday morning. We are going to start a completely new sermon series today. Uh, I'm sorry about the name. The more ridiculous a sermon series name is, the more funny it is to me. No pun intended. No. So fun, friendship, unity, and the nuance of relationships. The next semester, we're going to be talking about our relationships, our friendships, okay? What does it look like to do that? Um, But before that, I want to to remind you of a saying that many of you have probably heard before, right? Bad company corrupts good character. Okay, we've heard that. We know it. But I've got a couple other that I want to add on to that. Good company corrupts or corrects bad character. Yeah? Or creates, however you want to think about it, good company. No company creates no character. One of our biggest issues today is not so much that we're hanging out with bad people. It's that we're hanging out with no people. And particularly for those of us who have kind of graduated from college or even if you're in college and even just as a result of the pandemic, fewer and fewer of us have very many close friends. And that's really, really problematic because we can't do the very thing that God created us to do if we do not have close friendships and relationships. God created us to do that. All right. And so that's really why we're doing this sermon series is because, guys, we can believe as Christians a whole lot of things. 
But if we don't test those beliefs and how we live our lives and in the relationships that we have, we are not becoming who God created us to become. God did not create us to be on this earth so that we could believe a lot of really neat and great ideas about him and about how the world works. He brought us here. He created us to be in relationship with him and in the people around us. And to, by doing so, reflect how good and how great and how awesome our God really is. And that's really how we live out the things that we believe. Too many of us have bought into the idea that love is a feeling. It's something that we just simply feel. But the problem with that is if God is love, as John tells us, then God is a feeling too for us. If love is simply a feeling, then God is also a just simply a feeling. And too many of us live, uh, live as if God really is just a feeling. There's nothing more than that. Okay? And even so, often we feel like we're not in God's presence or we don't feel his presence. But love is so much bigger and relationship is so much bigger than something that we feel day to day or um, is something that kind of happens moment to moment. Hopefully we'll get some of that out. But we need to be challenged uh, in our friendships. I really do believe that. Uh, as our sermon series, we try to pick each semester what's really important for our body to hear. We're not picking up on the most pressing issues in our society always. We can do that individually and collectively. Um, we're trying to figure out what you all need to hear as a body. And so this is what we've picked. We need to remind ourselves about one of the most basic messages in the scripture, Jesus' heart for people how to do friendship well. The reason, guys, we are a small church is because every time our church reaches about 200, we send people off into another city and have them go do church there. Because we figured out that about, I mean, there's no simple magic to that number, but generally, as we get bigger than that, it's harder and harder to know the very people who are here. Yeah. One of the things that's been somewhat nice and refreshing as we lost like half of our church through the pandemic is that it we can actually kind of catch back up with all the people uh, that we you know, maybe uh, didn't pay attention to, didn't know uh, before the pandemic. And so it's been pretty nice in some ways, although it's certainly not that we're trying to run people off. But that's really who we are as a church. We want to know the people uh, in our midst because we believe that if we're going to really live out the, the calling that God gave us, it's going to have to be in our relationships. Okay? And we're going to have to do that as we interact with each other. So I wanted to say this probably once because I won't be preaching for another few weeks. Take the survey. I know we do a lot of surveys. We do it because we want to get a sense of where you guys are at. So help us. We've got about, I think, 30 responses now. I want to get up to around 80. Okay? And so that'll help us figure out what we want to do for uh, this friendship survey. Okay? And not only does it tell us some, you know, gives us an opportunity to hear from you ideas, it also kind of tells us where you're at. Because there's a little bit of a, like, a, how many friends you have? Uh, are your friends all your same race and ethnicity? Uh, are your friends all from this church, from other churches? It gives us a good glimpse of sort of the health of our spiritual friendships. Okay? Yeah? Good? How many of you are going to commit to take that survey if, if you haven't already? Okay, good. That's at least 20 more responses. Do it. We need 80, but that's fine. Do it. Okay, so in my mind, the best starting place uh, for really understanding friendship and relationship is the, uh, the Beatitudes. And so that's what we're going to, uh, to be in uh, this morning, in Matthew 5 in particular. 
So um, I, I say we need to be challenged in our friendships. Guys, I, this sermon was really, really hard to prepare uh, because of how challenging it was for me personally. Uh, so a quick background about me. I taught uh, at, uh, for, in college for about 10 years, retired about three years ago, opened up my own business. Um, all of our ministers, or most of them for the um, time being, are bivocational, so they support themselves and in some kind of job, and then do ministry on top of that. So I own a mechanic shop, many of you know, because your cars, I kind of like think about people in terms of their cars, I brought their cars there, I own a welding shop. And, you know, teaching was kind of a hard gig for me because I'm not the best at um, being patient with teaching, okay? So that was a long 10-year difficulty in terms of job. Um, But... This most recent owning my own business has been very good in the sense that I love what I do. I wake up every morning, I'm excited, uh, and I probably have no reason not to be. I make good money, I choose what I wanna do. But it's only in the last probably six months that I've realized in some ways how devastating it's been for my personal life. What I mean by that is I choose how I act at work, okay? And I don't, I choose how I relate to people. I spend almost all day when I'm at the shop, and some of you have seen shop bread, okay? (laughs) Shop bread is a little bit like uh, roommate bread. (laughs) He's not the guy that you see up here, okay? He's terse, short, mean, uh, not friendly at all. I have a social side to me. When I'm up here, it's obviously gonna be easier to do that. But that job has allowed me to really uh, um, embrace basically the sort of antisocial Uh, no friend side of my personality for years now. It's only now that I'm realizing just how uh, unchristian my attitude has been in a lot of ways at my workplace. Because all of us get that at some point. We realize how we've been treating people and we have to repent. This is me just confessing to you and repenting uh, in front of you how easy it is to get caught up in everything but loving and taking care of people. Yeah. Okay? Um, it's just easy. There's so many other things to care about uh, that it's easy for us to forget why God put us here. And so reading through these Beatitudes this week, we did this for our cohort, which I had to skip Wednesday because, uh, well, that's another story. I couldn't see out of my eyes for about eight hours. Um, yeah, welding. It happens when you're stupid and don't wear a mask. Um, can you talk a little louder? Yes. I can, pretty lady. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> I know it's really hard when you don't have the mic to project, so I'm sorry. I'll do a better job. Yes, the Beatitudes. Um, this is the best starting place. We talked about this in our Old Testament, New Testament survey last, um, our, our survey, sermon series uh, last semester. We talked about how the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, is sort of like the starting place, literally the starting place for understanding God. All right? It's a list of a bunch of don't do's. And that list goes, sort of gets developed into the law. Well, the Beatitudes is the starting place, okay, the starting place for living out the gospel. And ultimately, we get to see God's character more than we got to see in the Old Testament because we have Jesus. And Jesus gives us a perfect view of who God is. 
much better than they could have had in the Old Testament, although they certainly uh, had enough to understand who God was from the Old Testament, right? So this is sort of like a starting place. Uh, I remember a long time ago thinking the Beatitudes were literally Beatitudes. Like, this is how you ought to be. Have any of you thought that? You're like, no, I'm the only one? Okay. A bunch of liars. You're liars. Some of you just learned that just now. And you're like, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. I don't see anybody around me. No, this is not a list of self-help truths. Okay? If you'll just be this way in your attitude, you'll be really good to go. No, beatitude, the word has one T, and it literally means blessed, right? It's just a, a high and, you know, highfalutin word for blessed. You're blessed if you do these things. We have a tough time understanding blessed today because most of us think of blessed in the one aspect of the word, which is increase, uh, and not in the sense of blessed, meaning things bringing peace and uh, enjoy into our lives. So anytime we get a parking spot, which is my always example, or whatever, we think we're blessed. Okay, we have a real tough time with this word. Um, but uh, when the Beatitudes are talking about people being blessed, they're really talking about people increasing and uh, in their becoming like uh, God and doing what he wants us to do. Now, I'm not going to preach on these Beatitudes because uh, it would take too long. And I've been told I, I am doing too much teaching lately and not enough preaching. So I'm trying my best to, to you know, bring it down. I will recommend, though, Josh's sermon from last semester because it was really, really good. Pretty long. I don't know what Josh was thinking, but he preached on the Beatitudes and did an excellent job. I mean, really, it was it was wonderful. He went through each one and gave a lot of good thoughts there. So you can go back through that if you want to. So let's read Matthew 5, 1 through 12 together. And then I have a, just a few pretty short thoughts. So now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now, a little bit of background, and I know this is a little bit teachy and whatever, blah, blah, blah. But Luke also includes some of the Beatitudes in his gospel, right? And Luke's Beatitudes are are somewhat different um, than, or at least presented different than Matthew's. And there's a reason why. You know, Matthew is really talking to the Jewish people, okay, in his book here. He's talking really more philosophically, and he's really talking to them as a people of God who has sort of failed to understand their mission. Luke is really talking to the Greeks, and he's talking uh, to a group of people who are pretty destitute, and Luke generally focuses a lot on people who are oppressed and poor, and so his message, he kind of tailors a little bit more towards that group. Same Beatitudes here, you just have his use of them a little bit different. In fact, Luke even doesn't even talk about the Sermon on the Mount. He, it's really the Sermon on the Plain. Like, he literally says... Yeah, here I am on this flat ground versus where Matthew is like, you know, so, so these are different. This is not to say that uh, they're contradictory or um, that we should worry about, you know, uh, there's a lot of commonality between the two. Uh, but as Josh even mentioned uh, so well, I think in his sermon, uh, the Luke version really talks a lot about how our physical body and our physical world is intertwined with our spiritual world, that we can't separate the two. As James would say, you know, you can't tell someone, okay, be warm and well fed and then not feed them. That's not faith. And so that's a really important um, aspect there that, that Luke's Beatitudes are really talking to a specific group of people and, uh, and for a, a specific, uh, you know, kind of lesson. Okay. 
But we're going to be reading through Matthew because I think this is what we need to hear. So uh, he began to teach them. He's teaching his disciples in both of these stories. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the, the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be feel, filled. Field. Uh, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are when, you, when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven from the same way that persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there's a lot there. We're not going to focus on the ones that come from Luke. Uh, because it's a little bit different uh, of a sermon, and I don't want to preach that one. Okay, so the poor in spirit, those who mourn, um, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, listen to Josh's sermon. He did a better job of it anyway than I can. But you get the idea. What they want, they're not embracing. They're embracing the opposite. They're embracing the reality, and what they get as a result of that is the opposite. Okay, When they embrace their sort of need for God, okay, their spiritual poverty, or in some cases, as Luke would talk about, their actual poverty. And they lean into that rather than trying to, you know, I'm certainly not talking about leaning into poverty as if this is a good thing. But see, this is where the message gets complicated and this is not the message I'm trying to preach. But the idea is when they uh, pursue these things in faith with God, God gives them the very thing that they want. Okay? They're filled. But I want to talk about a few of these that I think are far more challenging and have more to do with relationships. So the one that's the meek one here is, is first. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, meek is a weird word. We've talked about it probably in multiple ways. Gentle, however you want to uh, put it. But to me, this is about structural relationships. God's saying that the people who are in power shouldn't be, and the people who should be aren't. I remember one of the first grad classes I ever took, we talked about all the sacrifices people have to make to be like CEOs or government officials. And these sacrifices were often sacrifices of character. And so someone in the class basically just asked, so you're saying that all the people who are in leadership positions really are like the worst people to be doing that job in terms of character, right? And the professor was like, yeah, basically. Now, I know that's an oversimplification, okay? Uh, Clayton's over here looking at me like, you're an idiot. And that's fine. Our, you know, professor over here. Uh, and uh, I can't really tell if he's looking at me like that because he's got the mask like almost over his eyes, too. Um, <laughs> but I think in this passage, he's basically just saying the meek, the people who aren't the powerful, really are the powerful in God's kingdom and will be. They'll inherit the earth. That's an amazing statement, and uh, I'll just simply say it's, it's a, a kind of a relational um, idea because it's about the structure of our relationships. Merciful. Blessed are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Again, this is sort of about individual relationships. It's, this is practical. This is difficult wisdom. This is if you show mercy to people, there's a way that it comes back around and you will be shown mercy too. Jesus tells a parable of someone forgiven. Garrett talked about this a couple weeks ago. If you live mercifully towards other people, people will be merciful to you. And even if they're not, God will be merciful to you. Because God lets the sun shine on both the wicked and the good. Okay? So again, a relational uh, kind of lesson, however you want to think about this. One of the ones that's hardest for me, I don't know about you, but if you look at blessed are pure, the pure in heart and blessed are the peacemakers... And what happens here in terms of their reward? Every other reward is non-relational. 
But all of a sudden, pure in heart can see God, and the peacemakers will become children of God. Look at all the other commands. Inherit the earth, you know, um, this treasure, that thing, you'll be filled. That, those have really nothing to do, at least not explicitly, with a relationship with God. But pure in heart and peacemakers have some reward that's intrinsically tied to being with God, seeing God, being his child. And I think he's elevating both of these things. These are the most important sort of the advanced beatitudes here. And so those are the ones I want to focus on, particularly the peacemaker one. But even the pure in heart, I mean, what does that mean? Number one, if you know much about the scripture, you know God can't be seen, right? You won't let people see him because if they see him, they'll die. All right? He gives Moses sort of a glimpse. Uh, but so what does it even mean that pure in heart are going to see God? I'm not going to try to explain that to you because I have no idea. <laughs> I will say that pure in heart to me from this passage, this context means having such a singular understanding of who are a pure understanding of who you are and who other people are that you can do things and know exactly why you do the things that you do. Someone who's pure in heart knows exactly why they do the things that they do. For most of us, we, we can't say that we do. We do stuff. We have mixed purpose, mixed uh, desires, mixed, you know, who knows? We have, don't usually have the ability to say with confidence, this is the reason I'm doing this thing. Hey, this is my purpose. But for whatever reason, those people who have singular purpose uh, have the ability to... Um, to see God. Now I want to talk about this, this one that's most difficult, peacemaker. I don't know about you, but if you're looking at the rewards here, this is the best reward. To be called children of God. To be God's very children. And of course, all these other things about being comforted, being filled, inheriting the earth, would come with being a child of God. So what in the world does it mean to be a peacemaker? And I actually have not a lot of good ideas on this. I, I almost just ended my sermon here. Um, because the thought of trying to describe what a peacemaker is and having me do it would be like trying to have a five-year-old come and teach you how to work on your car. If you want to learn about peacemaking, talk to almost anybody else in this church. And they probably have better ideas than I do. So I'm going to tread lightly. Uh, I am a man born in conflict <laughs> and embraces it every day. Uh, if I don't have a, some fight that I've picked with somebody in terms of words or just constant conflict, I don't feel at home in my own body. <laughs> All right? So the idea that peacemaking is this epitome, this pivotal thing about me being able to relate with God was super challenging to look through. Okay? Not only that, but it's kind of a, it's a paradox in this entire section. Because he's saying that if you're all these things, uh, and then finally caps it all off if you've been rejected by people, and they've said all these false things about you, then you'll be treated like the prophets, and you, have, you can rejoice. But that doesn't sound peaceful at all. Nothing about all of that rejection and you know, mourning and uh, being poor in spirit sounds peaceful at all. So how do we be peacemakers in a, 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 a context where nothing seems very peaceful? And we're encouraged on the one hand to embrace all these things that have nothing to do with peace. 
even in our relationships with others, other than maybe the merciful one, but even that, that's hard to be merciful to people who don't deserve mercy. (laughs) Particularly when they don't deserve it because they've wronged us. What does this mean? Okay? I seriously don't know, but I'm hoping this sermon series will enlighten me on this idea of peacemaking. Just because I don't know, and I am going to give a few suggestions, because I can't just call myself a pastor and walk away with I don't know. Although, to be honest, I'd be fine with it. Um, I want to know. And I think that's what's important, at least for me. I want to know, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Like, not just me personally, but the society I live in, the environment I'm in, I want to know, what does that mean? I need to know, almost. I'm excited about knowing, even though I'm sure uh, the consequence of knowing is going to mean that I have to do something very different in my life than what I'm doing now. But I really do want to know. I watched this super strange movie, okay, with Nicolas Cage in it, uh, called Pig. I don't know if you guys have heard the movie. Uh, I don't want to give away too much, but I'm going to give spoil some, so I'm sorry. Uh, He's a hermit in the woods, was a a really famous cook in Portland, but decided after his wife died to just sort of like give it all up, right? There's parts of this movie where I don't don't know if if you have like hermit-esque qualities like I do. You're just like, damn, that would be so nice. Like I almost immediately want to go on a camping trip. in the middle of the Portland woods to be a hermit for like a weekend or something. I wouldn't last. Anyway, he's got this pig, this truffle pig, truffle hunting pig. Uh, and truffles, I mean, I think I've had one before, maybe like oil, but there's some expensive, are they a mushroom? Yes. Great. Uh, that this pig sniffs out. And well, I won't spoil that part. Anyway, so he has this pig. And the pig for him, the value in the pig is not the truffle smelling stuff. Although, I mean, he loves the truffles. He has this relationship with this pig. Okay? He cares about this pig. Like, a lot. And the, the, the short of it is his pig gets stolen. Uh, there is a fight club among servers. <laughs> which is so strange. But there's this restaurant underworld. And so let's just say this restaurant kingpin, he's the one that stole the pig. And he's a hard man. He's evil through and through. When Nicolas Cage sees him uh, and meets him, he says, I'm not giving you your pig back. Go home or something worse will happen to you. Okay? And so he's totally dejected, has no idea where his, his pig is. Goes outside, and you think the movie's about to end in the most depressing way because it just seems like we really love to depress people in movies. Uh, thankfully, I watched Free Guy yesterday, and I mean, I didn't like it that much, but at least I didn't feel depressed at the end of it. I felt so good. Um, and so they go, he goes outside and kind of thinks about this, and he's finally like made this decision. He's going to go and get this pig back. And this is the part of the movie where you think, like, okay, he's going to go get revenge. This guy's over. He's done with. And it, it sort of fast forwards the scene where he's in this guy's cook, this kitchen. He's broken into this guy's house again, and he's cooking a meal. And it's the weirdest thing, okay? He's cooking a meal. And so then he asks the guy, it's actually the son, but he asks the guy to sit down and eat this meal that he's cooked for him. Okay, and this is the evil kingpin guy that's, you know, not giving him his pig back. And the guy starts crying. Because as it turns out, this guy, the kingpin guy, ate this exact same meal 12 years ago, made by this hermit guy at his restaurant. And it was the last really great memory he had of his wife. They'd basically been on life support. 
totally broke this guy's kingpin facade thing down by cooking a meal for him. And you can't really like explain the significance of this moment unless you realize just how much you know food takes priority in this movie and uh, you know how much this hermit guy is just kind of antisocial. But I didn't spoil the whole movie. He just made a meal for him. That's all I said. Truth about the kingpin? What do you mean? I just said he. None of that matters. That doesn't. You guys are idiots. Okay, number one, if that's the only thing you got from that really heartwarming and heartfelt story, you've got a problem. Number two, most of you will never see this movie. And if you did, it wouldn't be that good because every movie I recommend in here, I tell you, don't go watch it, all right? I don't think that movie was all that good or entertaining. Anyway, go go home. You go home. That is absolutely not spoiling the movie, but I don't care. If you say it is, it is, whatever. There's so much there I didn't give away. But guys, the point is, is he fights this evil with this stubborn kindness, okay? And that's what stuck with me from this movie. He had every right to just go off on this guy, do whatever he could in his power to get back this pig, which I know is sort of silly, fine, but if you're a hermit and you have a pig, I mean, you know, it's kind of like uh, Tom Hanks in the volleyball face. Uh, no, and no. Stubborn kindness, fighting evil with stubborn kindness. That's the closest example I could think of in my mind of what a peacemaker might be. is someone who looks evil in the face and deals with it with stubborn kindness. Um, That's it. That's the image that that came to me. Uh, It it made me also think just how much I hope that America in years to come when we're no longer a nation will be remembered not by the American Revolution – but by the civil rights era and all of the, pe- the things that people have done in the way of nonviolent fighting the oppression in our country, dealing with evil with stubborn kindness. I hope that's the reputation uh, that, that we have, because to me, that's what being a peace- peacemaker is. So I'm just going to say these two things in the end, and that is that I, I think in my best estimation of this, number one, being a peacemaker starts with caring about people like only Jesus can teach us to. Really, caring about people like only Jesus can teach us to. He's given us the example how to treat people. And that care, I use the word care on purpose, not love, because again, many of us think love is something that happens in my mind. Because it doesn't matter if you love someone in your mind and not in the way that you treat them. It is of no consequence, as Paul would say uh, in 1 Corinthians 12. And I'm talking to myself here. Absolutely. And the second thing, so it starts with caring about people uh, the way that only Jesus can teach us to. And second, I think this is important. It does not mean ignoring realities around us. Prophets are constantly chided, not, not, sorry, not the main prophets, but the false prophets were chided by God for saying peace, peace when there was no peace. It's not ignoring the realities around us. In fact, it's calling them what they are, being honest about them, and dealing with them with stubborn kindness. Really, the stubborn kindness, being able to take on the realities that are going on around us, not embrace them, 
but, but understand them and call them for what they are. Too many of us are decent at calling them for what they are and not moving to that next step of stubborn kindness or whatever you want to call it, peacemaking, making peace in the midst of war. And whatever that means, I think we have to sort of figure that out. And hopefully we do uh, over the course of this, uh, this sermon series. Uh, it is kind of our tradition around here to take questions uh, at the end of a sermon. And so we'll do that. Uh, this is a time for you guys to get clarification. Um, it's hard to speak and to speak in ways that you don't like sort of mess up or say something that you didn't intend to say or overemphasize or underemphasize something. And so that's why we take this time uh, to take questions. And then after that, we will uh, end from here. I'll, I will say one thing that I forgot. Any of you guys who want to come to the house uh, for our guys of an after, we have plenty of food, uh, toast and mayo and um, <laughs> Mario Kart and all kinds of fun stuff. So if you didn't sign up for that, you're welcome still to come. Just ask one of us that look like we know what we're doing. And we'll tell you where that's at. Okay. Questions? If you have any. If not, we'll take communion and then we'll end. Grant. Yeah, well, I think the uh, fun stands for not just friendship, Grant. Unity and relationships. So in that sense, I think it probably has more to do with the un and not the F. Another question? Yeah. No, I, I really, that was just a phrase that I came up with. I think that um, stubborn kindness for me in my world is, I was, uh, um, I have text fights a lot. I don't know if you do this, but I love to fight with people over text, right? There's just, it's just so much easier to tell someone off over text than it is their face. Because then you can just write the words and then you just send it and you're like, yeah, I sent that. And then you read back over and you're like, <laughs> but I had a rare conversation with someone the other day where they were really upsetting me and really making me mad. And I kept intentionally responding. This is one out of a hundred conversations I have. Okay. Kept intentionally responding within the moment, uh, something kind that I wanted to reflect back in this kind of conversation. Stuff literally over and over. Now, I finally did lose it at the end. I'm not going to lie. Uh, and said some things. But they were at least much better things than I would normally say. Uh, that's the best. And literally, that was the, the instance I was thinking of, uh, was this text conversation where rather than just immediately getting defensive and, uh, you know, my hair is raised, I was really trying to, like, um, bring it down. But the whole conversation should have happened on text, to be honest. That's my best attempt at it. Hopefully that helps some. I think you've got to insert how you're going to define peacemaker in your world, how you think about it. Because for some of us, honestly, peacemaking is um, we're not confrontational enough. Mm -hmm. We allow things to just happen and we don't do any making. Uh, We just hope that peace happens. We're peace hopers. (laughs) Hopefully. Maybe. That's not any better. I assume it means peacekeeping. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not not on that spectrum. I'm sorry. Or, I'm not on that side. Oh. Yeah. I wasn't saying anything bad about you. <laughs> yes. Um, you're talking a lot about like in response to um, like if someone else is disturbing the peace, like your response to that and being a peacemaker there. What would you say about like confrontational peacemaking, like where you're instigating? Like a, con- a confrontation, but try- how would you like keep the peace there? What would 
you, or like make peace there, uh, still be stubbornly kind? Yeah. Well, Jesus was confrontational. He asked a lot of confrontational questions. He didn't avoid bringing up confrontation or calling things what they were. But I think when you look at how he dealt with these situations, um, you know, for the most part, um, he, the best way to describe this was there's this kind of like deep concern and care for all people involved. Now, one of the best examples of this is, and I still just think about this story. I think so many of us have, myself included, we can't quite put ourselves in these stories anymore. We kind of think about them and we think about them as like just a story and not as actually happening. But when Pilate, one of the most powerful men Jesus ever met, uh, is questioning him and questioning him in a very cowardly way. He's just trying to get him to like either mess up and say something stupid or like admit to something. And Jesus is in that moment asking him questions about, well, what do you think is truth? How do you think about this? Um, to me, that's, you know, I mean, this guy's about to, you know, be a coward and, you know, let him die, be responsible for his death. Yeah. Uh, and Jesus is still concerned for this man's um, humanity, you know. And uh, so I think that bringing conflict uh, into situations is no problem. Most of us, though, when we're dealing with conflict, we're dealing with ideas and we, we stop seeing the people behind them. And I think that's one of our biggest issues is just simply when we hear an idea, we hear something that we don't believe or hear something's wrong, we stop seeing the person and just see them as an idea. It's why I'm so mad driving, right? I don't see people for people. I see them as cars. And I can get mad at a car, right? Right? So we do the same thing with ideas. Um, We stop seeing the person and we just, we see the idea. And Jesus just didn't do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that... uh, you know, when you, um, so first and foremost, there's no expectation in society that we care for people beyond our tribe or friendship. Uh, I mean, you can maybe kind of quote some general idea, like the categorical imperative of, you know, philosophers think, well, you know, the good of, you know, everyone is sort of, but we don't have that. Jesus gives us that and tells us that every human is made in God's image and therefore is of you know, priceless value. So to me as a Christian, uh, all of that flows out of the belief uh, that God truly loves and cares about everybody. And if I'm going to look like God, I'm going to care about people. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those daily you know, kind of growth things. We ask a lot, or we tell people in our, their daily quiet times to think about what is this teaching about the heart of God? I think just as good of a question uh, in terms of reading the scripture and in our, our interactions with the word or prayer is what does this teach me uh, about how God feels about and loves and cares about other people? Uh, not just the heart of God as if it's we're just trying to describe God. Because it's very clear, the scripture says you love God and you love other people. It's pretty simple. It kind of goes back. We, you know, complicate it a lot. Uh, and for those of us who have close relationships, we know this is the stuff that's most difficult: is really dealing with people. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I think that there's a lot of ways around it. But in some ways, to answer your question of how do we encourage care, we got to know what person we're talking to. We're talking to a Christian. We're talking to not a Christian. We're talking about someone who's been doing this for a long time. You know, for me, I've been doing this for a long time, and it's easy for me to professionally care about people it's part of my job 
right, as a minister. And I have to step back and wonder, do I really care about people? Um, and I find that it's when I'm at my least close to God, it's when I'm least concerned and care about the other people around me. Yeah. They go hand in hand. One more, and then we're done. No? Okay. Well, um, we're going to take communion. Communion's a little weird. It's a little cup. It's got a little cracker in it. Got some juice. And communion around here. Remember when we used to do that celebration stuff? Where did that go? That's kind of weird. Remember when we used to like celebrate and we were like all loud and really... No, we don't do that tradition here anymore, apparently. We've gone back to somber recognition of <laughs> communion. Guys, communion is exactly what we talked about today. It's literally remembering who Jesus is and then living like him. And we don't just will ourselves to do that. The Holy Spirit does that, changes us, teaches us to actually go out and live like Jesus. That is the Holy Spirit's role in our life is to remind us of Jesus. J.I. Packer talked about him having a floodlight ministry. The Holy Spirit puts a floodlight on Jesus. You want to know if the Spirit's working? It's not primarily about tongues and miracles, although those things happen. It's about, are you remembering who Jesus is? That's when you know that the Spirit is working. You want to talk about being a Spirit-filled church? Do people constantly remember who Jesus is? Is He the standard? Is He the thing we look back on? Is He the thing that we compare our lives to? Okay? And the ethic by which we live. Okay? And so as you take communion, and then we're going to break from there. So take a moment to pray or um, to think about something. But we're going to just... Uh, break after uh, after you've taken your communion God we uh, feels like God we're on a precipice in our culture and in our environment of just ripping each other to shreds help us to be peacemakers among uh, the war uh, that Satan and the powers and um, the institutions and governments and just sinfulness of people have wrought in our world for a long time. What does it mean uh, not to be blind to the realities of our world, but to see it as you see it and then really make peace, a peace that will last, peace that comes from you, from your justice, but from your love and mercy as well. I pray that this sermon series uh, will really reignite uh, uh, just a desire in us to be close, to get past our shallow and sometimes deep differences, uh, to see past the ideas and um, be able to see people and love them and care for them. Strengthen us in the sense, God, that we uh, have relationships across all of the different lines and boundaries that people make. And that you teach us and train us um, to really love and care for each other through those varied relationships, Lord. We take this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.